What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Don't Give Up the Shit Podcast. It's episode 55. Uh, this one is... I'm, I've been looking forward to releasing this one for a long time. Uh, this one was somebody, a listener to the podcast, put me in contact with uh, some people, and one of them was uh, James, who was the command master chief of the USS Cole uh, when it was bombed off the coast of Yemen. And, uh, I mean, this was before my time even um but it is something that's kind of fresh in my mind in, in a way um and it was an incredible conversation that i'm really excited to share with you guys um before i get to that uh just a kind of state of the union uh quick update for me i've gotten a couple of messages asking and um radiation's about halfway done um got about two and a half weeks left i should be done july 9th i think um, uh, side effects suck. I'm not going to complain too much because of the, I, I'm in a great place compared to a lot of people, um, that I'm watching get treated, uh, in the same facility. So it's just, it's really hard to complain, but I'm doing all right. Uh, it's, you know, it's miserable in its way, but it's just a grind and, uh, it'll be over soon. So uh, I'll, that when it's done, I'll be full up around uh, in about a month and be back to my normal uh, tempo, I guess. But uh, yeah, uh, you won't see a ton of new content uh, coming directly from me after the next few episodes. But by the time the, the stuff we have sandbagged uh, gets all released, I should be good and be back to recording and stuff. So uh, that's what's going on with that. And uh, if you guys would, to just to help out the podcast, and I always forget to put this up front, but it really helps when you guys like, share, subscribe, review us on iTunes, all that stuff. Uh, just help get the uh, the platform spread and noticed and what I like feeds the algorithms. And uh, it's we don't have a, a advertising budget of any kind. So uh, it does help. So if you could just like, share, subscribe, review us on iTunes and all the other platforms, uh, and we would really appreciate it. Uh, and with that, uh, we'll get to the interview. All right. So, uh, just like we talked about a minute ago, man, just give me your background, like your history in the Navy and your experience that led up to you being the CMC on the coal. And then we'll go from there. Yeah. Um, almost 30 years in the Navy. I did multiple platforms, uh, started out, uh, as a corpsman, uh, working at Great Lakes and then, uh, did a couple tours with the Marine Corps one of them was supporting Beirut uh, when the bombing happened in 83. Did um, multiple platform ships from Gator Freighters, a couple flat tops. I went on aviation medicine, did squadron. Um, I went independent duty corpsman and did a minesweep in uh, Desert Storm and Shield, which was a pretty interesting story there. Yeah, oh, geez. <laughs> um, especially got there hunting mines in the Persian yeah. Gulf. Then um, after IDC, decided to go uh, – at one point to command master chief program. And that's when I, yeah. uh, I finally didn't think I'd make master chief, to be honest with you. You know, some of us sometimes right. don't think of that. And a lot of people helped me get there. And, uh, that was a tough decision to make yeah. was to, uh, you know, give up the rate, put that star in the rating badge. And, uh, but I felt like, you know, I wanted to do what would help the said Navy and sailors most. And I felt that was it, uh, in, in representing the command as, as a master chief yeah. and, uh, being the, uh, you know, the, the sounding board to the captain. And so I got assigned to Cole and that's how I wound up on Cole after I, uh, my as my first assignment, as a matter of fact, as a command master chief. And we'll talk about that. 
Then uh, after that incident with Cole, with the attack on Cole um, in October of uh, 2000, um, I went ahead and took an assignment uh, to, to decompress at Sigonella. Okay. And um, ironically, some of our guys went through SIG. And uh, I wound up uh, in Great Lakes where I started my Navy career as Command Master Chief of the Base and oh, uh, nice. working for Navy Region Midwest for Admiral Rondo until I retired in 06. Okay. Fun fact, I was uh, I was born in 1983, so there you go. <laughs> you really make me feel young. <laughs> I just, when you said 83, I was just like, oh, yeah, hey, that's, uh, that's my birthday. Uh, so what, like, I'm curious, what, can you go into the story about, like, first Beirut and then the Minesweeper? Because that sounds super interesting. Well, Beirut, I wasn't actually the uh, boots on the ground okay. with the BAS. That was 8th Marines. I was with the 24th yeah. uh, Medical Battalion. Uh, I actually was with 2nd Battalion, 2nd Marines, and then uh, they asked for some help. Yeah. And sometimes they do that, like ships, they'll borrow people. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I said, hey, an op opportunity, that's what we joined for. And uh, yep. bottom line is uh, the dentists, believe it or not, were the ones that did triage after that barracks got hit, and we lost over 270 people. Wow. Yeah, I've heard that, that they have some, yeah. some responsibilities that you don't expect them to have uh, when no. they're in areas like that. And, you know, I lost the docs and uh, the corpsmen. They were all in that battalion aid station in that wow. building. So it was actually the dentists, dental techs that were doing triage. And then yeah. eventually the med battalion, you know, we, we some were ashore, some of us came ashore. To, by the time we got to that, though, it was it was just more of a cleanup, which was, it was yeah. pretty bad. It was pretty bad. <sighs> and then uh, the mine sweep, years later, I, I just made chief on, on a uh, MSO. 490 USS leader. And, um, that was an interesting initiation. I'll leave it at that. Uh, cause in 1990, yeah. 91, you know, things were done a lot different in initiating yeah. our chiefs then. Yeah. The CMC I had, uh, on, on the submarine I made chief on told us stories. He was a third tour cob on a submarine and had done a CMC tour in between. So like he, he made chief back in the nineties. I think it was a little later than that, but still like it was a lot different. <laughs> yeah. You still we ate through. <laughs> you still ate stuff. I won't talk about. Yeah. And, uh, it was more physical than it is now. We, we, yeah. we obviously took the right turn or doing the right things today. Cause right. all that stuff did was more demeaning and you know, you didn't learn from that stuff like yeah. you do now. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad we did make those changes through time. Yeah. But, um, you know, we, we spent some time when we went over our, ironically, you know, Cole was put on a heavy lift ship. And, well, yeah. my first experience with one was with the mine sweeps. Four of us from uh, Charleston, we were based out of Charleston, were uh, put afloat on a uh, the Blue Marlin. And, mm. and she was sent over uh, separate of the crew. We flew over and met her over there. They had like a skeleton crew for the ships to do soundings and whatnot because they're wood ships, yeah. you know. Yeah. And you got to watch the wood drying out for obvious reasons so that they don't set off magnetic mines. Yeah. But we had, we met her in Byran. We trained there until January of, uh, of the 91. And, uh, we got woke up like zero dark 30 in the morning. We're going North boys. <laughs> and so we trained all that time to do mine hunting. And now the real deal. Yeah. And one of the, uh, things that stays with me probably will forever is, uh, we uh, were escorting the Saudis. They had, they had world-class uh, minesweeps and 
they didn't get halfway up the Persian Gulf, and next thing you know, they're turning around heading home. Wow. And we still headed north in these old uh, <laughs> World War, post-World War II era, because ours was built in 49, 1949. Jesus. I, I always heard that, that they were super yeah. old, but yeah. But our that, technology wow. and... Yeah, our technology and money was not into minesweeps in that time. Uh, and, the, and the only one we had was a new class, was the, that Avenger class, MCM-1, yeah. the Avenger. Yep. And she got broke dick, man. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, new ships. Yeah. And they they yep. experimented and they put these uh, engines in there. They mixed Too many bells and whistles. European with American stuff, you know. And, well, yeah. stuff's going to. And what happened was is one of the sounding guys went by one of the main engines and uh, when they were running and. Uh, blew a piston bottom line so yeah. they had to figure out why the pistons were prematurely wearing and blew through the side of the engine wall so here you got three 1940 late 1940 early 1950 mine sweeps going up there to do the business with the japanese and the english who had far better mine uh hunting technology than we did yeah um i mean we well i, sh- I shouldn't say completely because we did have this ninja equipment in the evaluator room and the sweep but here you had this state-of-the-art equipment in this old ship, you know? Yeah, yeah. But uh, we were behind Tripoli, and again, about 2 or 3 in the morning. And get this picture, man. She's leading the three mine sweeps. And she hits a mine in a minefield near the Durham oil fields up north, northern uh, Persian Gulf. And you, some people have read or know about Tripoli hitting that mine and you know first thing you know we go to gq because you could hit you could feel it in your rack you could feel the concussion yeah it was yeah. that powerful but luckily it didn't kill anybody but uh, we were initially looking for bodies and then somebody got the smart idea to say hey we might want to be looking for mines man yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are these searchlights out looking for bodies so anyway yeah sure enough buddy we're in the middle of a, a contact uh slant magnetic minefield and so we spent the whole day with EOD head boats come in and help as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, but, uh, that day, man was, was hell. I mean, the whole day was hell, but yeah. uh, there's a point where we came within inches of a 500 pound contact mine, World War II era kind of mine. The ones you vision. Yeah. Oh the my port God. Watch. <laughs> the port watch. And I mean, this is a, this is like a 400 foot long. It's like a fishing boat size wood boat, oh, man. Jesus. You know that, that. So if we hit this mine, we're all gone. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. But, um, so the XO, you'd have to know this guy, I won't give his name, but he was something else, but he gets on the <laughs> damn one MC. I'm back aft with the radio man. We're man in our station. And, uh, he, he yells out on the one MC brace for shock. We're all going to die. <laughs> oh my God. The way to keep things calm. XO Jesus. Holy. <laughs> oh, there's stories about That's this guy, man. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Oh, I, man. I, matter of fact, there's one other story. Can I tell um, yeah, with this sure. guy when we were doing workups uh, in the Persian Gulf before the war broke out? You know, we'd go out and do the mine hunting, and we'd also do trying to do somewhat of a defense. You can't really defend that uh, kind of boat too well. Yeah. Um, but bottom line is, he had sandbags all over in his stateroom <laughs> and two M14s loaded. <laughs> okay, this is how paranoid this guy was. Wow. So anyway, he. So we have this this GQ drill, and it was a mass con flag. You know, we're going to lose kind of thing. But yeah. so I'm down below a man in my station. I had a, a, like a really small medical. So mainly, mainly I was out t- topside, you know, helping and yeah. responding. But um, all of a sudden I hear, uh, Doc, Doc. And this was, obviously, I was an IDC then, independent duty yeah. corpsman. 
uh, up to the uh, bridge. So I thought somebody was hurt. So I'm hauling ass up there yeah. and uh, get to the bridge and there's freaking red smoke just coming out of the bridge. And I'm going, holy crap, what the hell? So here comes the XO out, of, out through all this damn red smoke. And his, his hair's blonde. His hair was freaking orange, dude. <laughs> <laughs> he says, Doc, Doc, do you what got do some do? peroxide or something, <laughs> man? I need to get this shit out of my hair. <laughs> uh, that's hilarious. That's, so that that was an experience. That whole tour over there during Desert Storm and Shield was something else, man. That, Like you said, he, he really made it interesting. Yeah, um, that's hilarious. But uh, oh man! So that's that's somewhat uh, my experience. Other than the fact that uh, we did have some Iranian gun boots, boats come in, um, we were actually going through the Dura oil field sweeping. We had we had actually seen the platform shot up by the seals. Mm. It, was, it was eerie. Uh, these guys had like you know plywood up for barriers, which I think going to stop with right yeah. man. <laughs> so they were pretty they were pretty destroyed and. Uh, but these gunboats started coming in on us, you know, and here we got just a 50 cal and a guy, one guy with a stinger missile. All right. Yeah. That's our protection. That's it. <laughs> um, and, and a wood boat. Yeah. Uh, so I know somebody, I wasn't on the bridge, but somebody called it in. These guys were coming at us full blast with these high speed boats, these Iranians. And, um, oh man, I'll tell you, it was hearts were pounding or yeah. a pucker factor was high. God, that's, and that all of a sudden crap out of me, man. Like we, <laughs> We'd be coming out of, in and out of port, and we're like I would be topside as a line handling supervisor. And on a submarine, it's like you have one guy topside with an M4, and then a dude <laughs> up in the sail with a crew serve weapon, and that's it. Like you're banking on your the little small boats around you. And in like in San Diego, they would you'd have a sailboat with like civilians waving at you like 30 feet away and you're just like how is this okay? <laughs> like if any no. one of these was trying to attack us, we'd be screwed. You know the feeling then. Oh my God, but it's terrifying. I'm going to tell you, our British friends, I'll, I'll, I'll thank them forever. HMS London was um, screening our area and they came in. You could see them hauling butt, dude, full flank speed. Yeah. And when those gunboats saw her coming, they turned like, and ran. Never mind. <laughs> That's awesome. That, yeah, that always scared the crap out of me. Every time we were topside uh, and like, I was on a ballistic missile submarine for my last tour, and they're a lot better about it. They have these huge blocking vessels. There's a Coast Guard security detachment. There's all this stuff. There's all, like a ton more protection for obvious reasons. But like, yeah, when I was on fast boats, whew, going in and out of port was scary. <laughs> <laughs> like going for just like a personnel transfer. Yeah, um, I was on one of those recently. Uh, John Pine is a cop in the Tennessee. Um, oh yeah, and he invited me down, and I tell you what, man, I've never been on one of those, and yeah, I tell you, that's that's something else to see a a boomer, you know. Yeah, and you're like people, it's funny. You think people think those things are small. It's like go walk around a Los Angeles class submarine and tell me that that thing's small. Because I my first boat was an eighty eight, and then I was on a Sea Wolf, and then uh, last one was a was a BN. And good grief, like that thing's huge in comparison to the other ones. Oh yeah, that was an eye opener, and I would really thank John again for taking us down there and. Uh, and, yeah. and, and really uh, showing us his ship, you know? Yeah. That's awesome. So, uh, the, for, for, I mean, everyone knows kind of, and that's kind of where I'm coming from is like, I know what I've read about the bombing, um, on the coal, but like, 
we'll start with like however much you want to share, like we talked about, about what actually happened and how it happened from your perspective. And then I, you know, like I said before too, I definitely want to get into the, the leading, like how, how you dealt with it at, from the leadership position you were in uh, as that stuff happened. Yeah, actually the uh, leadership uh, challenge was not only under crisis, but before mm-hmm. as uh, other ships in our um, battle group, because we were then with the George Washington battle group, but Okay. We were going to be the lone ship, you know, because of the money. They didn't have uh, a lot of support ships behind her. It was just us yeah. and uh, a uh, supply oiler going across the Atlantic. Okay. Um, but um, when I got to her at first, uh, the CMC had been relieved for cause. Didn't know oh, that. Jeez. So the culture. And, uh, and so the culture was a challenge. Stuff, yeah. yeah. The the chiefs had let uh, the mess down and uh, that's no secret. Uh, they got their butts chewed because they let the command master chief uh, when they were in Puerto Rico get in a car drunk from the oh, mess. Geez. And nobody, you know, took the time out to have his back, whether they liked him or not, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, once they, once they got done with the, the previous master chief and obviously relieved him, the mess was told to go in and the Commodore ripped them a new one. Yeah. So I knew when I went in that there would have to be leadership guidelines. And, you know, one of the things was I told him I wasn't going to tolerate that and, you know, no backstabbing. We had a mission to accomplish and that if they didn't want to be on there and I told them my my rules uh, as their CMC, then they need to go call the detailer. And oh um, <laughs> they they didn't. You know, they, they, yeah. they I told them I didn't want E7, obviously, and 8s yeah. working in the command. I wanted chief petty officers for sure. Yeah. I, I've, I've seen this weird thing and I wonder if you agree because of, because of what you're describing is I've, and I've had conversations with my buddies about it. Cause I've always found that in a mess, it's like, there'll be me and a handful of other guys that are constantly driving certain cultural things. And that when people start to like relax or people start to accept mediocrity in one form or another, like, I'll, me and maybe a handful of other dudes are the ones flipping out about it. Like, no, that's not okay. But what I've seen is like, depending on who is in the the CMC or SEL position, kind of they set the tone, they set the culture of the mess. And then what you'll see a lot of times is guys that could be lighting the world on fire with a guy like you. And then another guy comes in that might, his bar might be a little lower or he might just be a little different and do things a little differently. They adjust to his, his tone and culture setting. You know what I mean? Where it's like guys that you would think wouldn't allow bad things like that to happen. They kind of like just adjust to their surroundings. They're just like, Oh, this is what we're doing now. And then they start doing that. And it's kind of bizarre because you look at these guys, like they're these pipe hitter, you know, type a personalities. And then when the culture and the, and what we're doing changes, they kind of just adapt and it's kind of bizarre. So I wonder if you saw kind of the same thing where those, those guys, like they adjusted to that guy, he got fired they realized they had screwed up and then you came in and set a new tone and a new culture. And they're just like, Oh, okay, this is what we're doing now. You know what I mean? Yeah. What I, what I understood, at least listening to the chiefs was they were yeah. working with a uh, master chief with dictative leadership style, okay, which is not good. And, yeah. and driven them, driven his mess that way. Like I said, I wasn't witness to all of it. Right. But I went in there letting them know that uh, one of my rules was I wanted them to be 51% of the vote, not me. Yeah, like that that's, you know, but if I had to be the, 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 the voter and they couldn't make up their mind and I'd do it, I wasn't afraid to do that, right. but I'd rather see the mess work together and send a message to the captain and XO that, uh, this is what we need to do, or this is where we need to go. 
And one of the, I think really, well, I know one of the key things that I did with my captain, cause he was new, just like me, I only right. showed up a few months after him was, um, his relationship was so important. You know, that as a, yeah. as a chief to the mess. Yeah. And, um, so we had some, you know, obviously not just the training because of the crew, we had 45% almost of the crew turnover Yeah. before we left. So that's a challenge. We got the SCBAs, which is the, uh, you know, the self-contained yeah, breathing over. apparatus. Yep. We went from the old OBA system. So yep. there's a lot of system <laughs> changes, you know, the deal. So we yeah. had that challenge. Plus you had the warrior stuff to do. And then you had, you know, your, uh, division and, and other things to do to be mission ready. Yeah. Well, you know, it's not easy and it gets complicated. So as we're working towards mission readiness and, and I'm, I'm just an old doc by trade, uh, things started getting a little technical and somewhat complicated in some things. So I said, you know what? Uh, I think I need to get the captain down here and each one of you chiefs in your technical yes. uh, areas and in your lingo need to tell the captain. So I went up and told Captain Le- Kirk Lippold, sir, you need to take your armor off or put, I'm sorry, put it on and uh, bring your notebook and be ready for anything. Yep. Cause you know, in a mess, you're going to hear anything. And other yep. chiefs had, had groomed him already and, yeah. and he understood. So I took him down there and I let him loose, man. That's and awesome. I'm going to tell you what, not only did we fix some problems and, and fi- figure out how to expedite getting to that end point ready to go to the tip of the spear, but the captain had built a relationship with his chief petty officers and yep. senior chief petty officers. And I made it clear to them that every little thing, I'm not that kind of mass chief. I don't know how the other guy was, but you don't need to bring all your personnel and other issues to me directly. I don't want yeah. it. Now, if it's going to go up to the command level, yes. Yeah. But if it, you know, you need to keep it down at your level, division officer, whatever level, and that's it. I'm not going to be a micromanagement kind of guy here. Right. I don't work that way. And right. if you've got technical issues that need to go to the XO captain, well, please do. For sure. Don't come to me. I, I, I got enough crap going on, you know, without <laughs> have, you know, I don't need all that technical ninja stuff uh, in yeah. my lap. And so it, it that, you know, that streamlined everything. And, yeah. you know, like you said, some, some mass chiefs operate different than others, but that's, that's the way I operated. And, and, and my unintended consequences, we got a lot of problems fixed and we got our mission ready. That's um, yeah. That's a huge quick thing too. I, I think that relationship builds a ton of trust between commander and chiefs. And it's just like, I've seen it work both ways where like I had a, a relationship where the cob brought the CO down and he just, it, he, he wasn't willing to receive any criticism. Like I got in a screaming match with him at one point because you can't like you came down here because you wanted to hear feedback on what you were trying to do and what you're trying to do is a bad idea. I'm going to tell you it's a bad idea. That's what you came in here for. The door's closed. Like the crew can't hear you. You wanted this unadulterated feedback. Here it is. And then everybody's looking at me like I got three heads when I do it. And it's just like, what? Like you came down here for that. That's what we're here to provide. And I'm not attacking you. I just, I'm giving you the feedback you came here for, but he didn't have his armor on as you expressed it. Like he didn't, he just, his pride and ego got hurt. And it's like, you can't come down here that way, man. It's, it's not going to work if you come down here and you're, you're defensive and you're not willing to receive the feedback from all these guys. Cause that we're trying to help. Like we're trying to give you the, the information that you need to make the best decisions possible and tell us which way to go. And then that's what we're going to do. But like, it was, there was this relationship where he just didn't understand that we were all here. Like I work for you, sir. Like I'm here to get behind you and push. But one of the ways that I'm going to do that is letting you know when you something that you want to do is a bad plan, because I don't want you to then go forward with that and 
all the consequences that you're not seeing that I'm trying to explain to you end up biting you, you know? Yeah. And, and sometimes your, your cob may or may not be part of the problem. It just depends on right. how receptive that captain is to that cob or command master chief, you know? Right. And right. how willing they are to, to look, put aside their personal, like you said, issues and, and do the right thing for the mission and the ship. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and there's an example of that too. Uh, what you were just talking about was, uh, you know, when I, got the ship they mandated the uh surface warfare uh qualification yeah you know because you guys the sub guys had led the way in trying to be mission ready by knowing your ship you know yeah so we as a mess were trying to figure out how to do it right on coal right um we wouldn't want want to hand out like candy but we wanted to make it challenging and and attainable because you know you have different iqs out there bottom line right you know so anyway, the wardroom got a hold of it, and of course you can only imagine. So this little this little pamphlet became almost a book, dude. Yeah, uh, I'm a notebook. Yeah. And um, then the mess finally, you know, hey, mass chief, we need help. You know. Yeah. So I took it up there, the book and everything, and uh, asked him to. And this is my first, actually, my first one on one with him. <laughs> Not a good way. You know what I mean? I'm going to yeah. challenge him. Uh, and I was uncomfortable because it's, you know, it's my yeah. first time doing this stuff. Right. But, uh, bottom line, uh, he said, what do you need? And, um, uh, I told him, sir, you know, you and your wardroom have made this thing so complicated that it's not attainable and it's, yeah. it's too much. And he says, well, what do you want me to do? I said, I want you to let the chief petty officers do this. He yep. says, well, I want us to do it too. I, we need some input for, uh, you know, I said, well, sir, you have the wardroom. I've got the mess. This is if you can see on here, enlisted surface. Yeah. Yep. I didn't get through that, dude. Yeah. Freaking papers are flying <laughs> in the stateroom. You yeah. take this and just go handle it yourself, Master Chief, you know, yeah. and, and, and nice, in a nicer way. Yeah. yeah. But that was my first run in with Kirk Lipbold. And uh, oh, that's funny. But you know what? When you get past that finally, because like, you're like yeah. a kid. You know, you're kind of scared of where this is going to yeah. go. Yeah. It's kind of a boot, a number, number 10 boot up your ear in. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so, but we got it back. That's the main Good. thing. And and we were able to make it a, uh, a program that was attainable, but yes, challenging, you know. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. It's the, one of the things that I talk to people a lot about that process and how it works on submarines. And it's just kind of like the based on the different aptitudes and stuff, it's like, we always had the focus on damage control. Like the entire time I've been doing it, it's just been like, like, yeah, there's things that it's kind of understood that you need to know. And there's things that you need to have a basic working knowledge of. And, and that's it. And almost all of the in-depth knowledge revolves around DC. Like everybody's a damage controlman on a submarine. So it's just like, that's the big stuff. And then a lot of boats do practical stuff too, to make sure that people actually know how to do it. They're not just regurgitating something they read in a book. And then they go from there. But yeah, it's, it's definitely, uh, I, when I saw that I was, I was happy. Like when they mandated it, I was like, Oh great. That's awesome. Because then like, I remember learning in boot camp about like the forest all fire and everything else. I'm like, if they had known how all that stuff worked, they might've been able to fight the ship better. But yeah, I just, it's, uh, I got excited about it, but then I got worried about it. And then I talked to, I made a bunch of surface friends like later in my, like when I went to my first shore duty and, uh, and they talked about it and I was like, Oh, maybe this is different than I think it is. And, seems like it was different ship to ship too. I'm not sure. Well, you know, I, I think I, I don't know how the, how the sub community works on that, but yeah, 
I know surface wise, a lot of people will personalize it to their command yeah. as well. You know, yeah. Submarine wise, there's not much variance. Like there, there's a little oh. bit where the command will have a, like a command qualification and training instruction, but nowadays everything's run through a computer program and it's all standardized across the force. And so it's like you, you you're all learning the same things. The the bar is at least theoretically set in the same place. I, it all depends on the subject matter expert you're talking about for that checkout, but <laughs> it's pretty, cl- it's pretty similar. You're going to see a lot of, a lot of standardization across the force nowadays. Yeah. I'm getting, I'm still getting message traffic. Sometimes there are letters from friends that are in high places and yeah, um, it looks like they're possibly going to change it back to being a voluntary program again. Yeah, that's what it sounded like. I, I read an article saying something to that effect, but I haven't, I mean, I haven't seen anything official, but I've been out of the loop for a couple months now just because of all the medical stuff. But You've been in the loop longer than me though, brother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been retired so long, but that's why I have them send me stuff just so like during the season of pride or initiation time, whatever yeah. you want to yeah. call it. But I want to make sure that I'm up to snuff yeah. because I like to still participate and I don't want to be that old. That's good. That, you know what I mean? That's out there doing yeah. the wrong thing though. You know? Yeah. I definitely, no, I, I'm glad that you're involved because I find that like, and I've talked about it on the podcast before a while back during some of the chief season stuff. It's just like, I don't understand why retirees aren't leveraged more. And I'm sure there's probably certain areas that do it better. It's just in the areas that I've been in. Uh, it's not generally that robust, man. Like once in a while, you'll see one of the one of the CMCs from the region that retired there will, will pop up. But a lot of times it's like, they're, it's just not taken advantage of where I feel like there's a huge appetite for it. Cause I went and got uh, one of my CMCs that retired to come talk to the crew of my next submarine when I was running like the, they, I, they called it CPO 365 at the time, but just like yeah. some leadership training. And I, I asked him to come speak to him and man, they were, I had 50 first classes in a room that were on the edge of their seat, just hanging on his every word. And then when it was done, they were all super thankful, shaking his hand and happy about it. And then, I mean, we walked down one flight of stairs and I think he thanked me half a dozen times because he got to stand in front of a group of sailors and be that guy again and like be involved and contribute. And he was just super happy to be rubbing elbows with sailors again because he'd been retired for five years, you know, and he just got that like fix. (laughs) And there's things to learn from us old guys because there is some things in the Chiefs community that uh, is hard, fast stays the same. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's certain things surrounding it that change, but the core, the core leadership and other things that you don't read yep. in a book that you yep. learn from experience from that master chief and how he got there. That makes yep. all the difference in a sailor's life to be a better chief. Yeah. And I, I just having those conversations too. Like I just, you find yourself sitting there. It's like living history, man. It's like you're sitting there and you're getting this stuff like downloaded in you. And that was one of the things like when I made chief, I made chief in nine and a half years. I was barely ready. And I took the first year or more getting punched in the face, figuring it out before I really felt like I was a chief. And yeah. the the CMC that I had had been around for almost 30 years. And during the season, I remember we he, he had us do book reports, right? A lot of people do book reports. So we, we all read a book. And of course we were so overwhelmed with everything else that was going. We were at sea operational on a special projects platform. Like I had 10 million things to do on top of the chief season stuff and stay and watch and everything else. And so you're like overwhelmed. Of course you are, you're select. So uh, <laughs> our book reports were half out because of course they were. And so like we went in there and did our book reports and got 30 seconds into them before we got shut down. 
And instead of destroying us, he sat there and gave effectively a book report, but he did it in a way where it was like, it was like he was there. Like he's doing like the book report on, there were six of us and every one of us had a different book and he had clearly read, highlighted and probably wrote the margins of every single one of these books. And we were just like dumbfounded and just sitting there listening to him go through it. And it was, and then relaying like his own leadership experiences and just that kind of stuff. I, I get excited about it cause I'm passionate about this stuff, but like I, I've never seen more effective leadership development training ever. Like I just, yeah. somebody like you, somebody like him, somebody that's been around for a really long time, did all the things, has all the stories, has all that experience sitting down and sharing that. I've never, I've never seen anything like it. I sat down with my wife's grandfather before he passed and he was a Korean war veteran. And for whatever reason, like she told me, she's like, I've never seen him talk to anybody like that. And it was just, I don't know if it's because I'm in the military or what, but he started telling me all about his experiences in Korea. And I was just like, like riveted. (laughs) I was just sitting there and I was asking him these questions. And um, yeah, man, I just, I I feel like it's a, it's an untapped resource that it's like, I know people know it's there. I know it's, it's in the McPond's guidance and um, occasionally I think it gets leveraged, but it's, there's so much there that I feel like isn't drawn on enough. And that's something that I hope to do more on, on this podcast is talk to people like you and get some of that stuff recorded and shared in a way that it'll be received by all these sailors that got smartphones welded to their hands. Yeah. Last year I got to do stepping in the mast at great lakes. Um, oh, that's with, cool. with all the chiefs that of course the mess is quite big up there at RTC right. as well as, you know, we had fleets and forces and Mick pond there, but uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, and then others, other retirees there, but you know, what a platform. And, and you're right. When local regions or even just local command areas can put stuff like that together, it, it makes a whole lot of difference. Yeah. There's so much there. Um, and you know, you know, and the Korean war vet, I think unintendedly you, you helped him too, you know, by yeah. healing and, and telling his stories. Yeah. Sharing his was- experience. It was pretty shocking. We were just at a restaurant having some food. And I was uh, like, cause she, and she just told me recently, like, cause I had brought it up that uh, kind of same type of conversation where I was, I wanted to talk to more people like that, like retirees and veterans. And, um, and she said, yeah, I've never heard my grandfather like tell anybody that much information, like that much detail. Like he just never talked about it. And then he, here we are at a Mexican restaurant. And he's just telling you all about, uh, all these crazy experiences he had in the army when he was in Korea. And I was just like, Holy crap. Like he was, he was a truck driver, but like, you know, everybody's an infantryman. So like he had some wild stories and, um, mm. and yeah, I, I, I hope it did. He was an awesome guy. I wish I had gotten to talk to him more before he passed, but, um, yeah, my dad, was, my dad may have been over there with him cause he was Korean war and Vietnam vet. Oh really? And, um, wow. like you said, you know, I'm glad he told me cause he's not here anymore either. And, uh, yeah. To hear it from your own dad and sacrifices yeah. he made. It, it Like you, it took a while for him to open up yeah. uh, years later in his life. Yeah, that's, yeah. I, I really enjoy that kind of stuff and I'm hoping to do more of it. So let's, uh, let's, let's shift get over back on to, track. Yeah. I told you we'd get <laughs> off on a tangent. <laughs> so, uh, experiences right, so, of of day of you know what i mean like how, how, how like what were you doing where were you and how did it all go down and, and then we'll get into the the leadership dynamics of it yeah we uh you know we successfully transited the atlantic hit quite a few liberty ports in the uh yeah. uh Mediterranean. uh we dealt with the first gq in the adriatic they were looking for a guy named milosevic 
who had mm, war yep. crimes. And uh, we were being spied on by an unmarked white ship. It had all these antennas. Yeah. We intercepted her, went to GQ. That was a first taste for the crew to get the real general quarters. Wow. And um, we uh, made contact with her and the captain warned him. He said, I'm going to send a five-inch round over your bow here in a minute if you don't identify yourself. Yeah. So they put up a British flag. And then uh, the Marines took over and VBSS, you know, vertical board search and seizure of the ship. And yeah. We went on our way to finally inch up into the, to the fifth fleet and to, towards Yemen. Yeah. Um, and it- successfully transited the Suez Canal. And then uh, 12 October 2000, we're anchored outside of uh, that port of Aden Harbor, uh, directed to take on about 200,000 gallons of fuel. Yeah. And how normal is, is that evolution? I was, I was reading a little bit about it that it was routine. And I'm like, I, that doesn't no. sound routine to me, but I wasn't around back then. So no, it was political. Um, okay. the Clinton administration, um, was trying to, uh, you know, better the relationship with the Yemeni government okay. because it was a, you know, Djibouti was right across the Yemeni sea there. And so it was a, for us, I guess, a key strategic place, yeah. you know, plus they were all producing company, a okay. country. Um, but yeah, when we, we got ready to pull in there, man, I tell you, it was eerie. Uh, you, got, yeah. you always get this uh, sixth or seventh cent, whatever, um, gut feeling that something ain't right. You know, we had yeah. these half sunk ship on our starboard side, these abandoned Iraqi tankers from Desert Storm and Shield on our port side. Wow. Um, just didn't feel right. We we're going to refuel in the middle of the harbor. Thank yeah. God it wasn't pier side in Aden. Yeah. It yeah. could have been a lot worse there right. alone. Uh, the pilot was insistent on parking us with bow pointed in towards land and captain Lippold, he was, uh, insistent that we were going to turn her around and have her in the middle of the Harbor park. So their bows pointed out towards sea, towards that right. exit, you know, the Harbor. Right. So you can uh, just yeah, get out of there. So if something happened, he was thinking yeah. ahead as a captain would. Yeah. Um, and so we did, we wrapped up and it was found out that, you know, there was multiple sales like, uh, with Al Qaeda. That's what they do. They don't communicate with each other, but they do have certain tasks to do that are part of the mission, their mission. And we believe that that was one of them that the pilot intended for us to park that way. So if we were crippled or anything, you know, that it'd be more difficult to get her out of there. Yep. Um, So anyways, we're wrapped up starboard side too, uh, hooking up fuel. I'm up top side. They're setting up the quarter deck. Uh, we're in at force protection Bravo. Um, we have only one watch armed up topside with a nine mil and that's fireman Mooney uh, started noticing the small boats coming in. There was different kind of boats cause it's a third world country. Yeah. Coming alongside to take on garbage. And that's how the uh, Al Qaeda boat, small boat, the pleasure boat with the IED in it yeah. uh, was able to get close to us and kind of blend in with them. Yeah. But um, I went down below to my office, a real small office next to the mess decks where yep. they were uh, cooking up some chow and had heard, you know, you hear the crew there too and the chow line saying, hey, we're running ahead and feeling we're going to get out an hour earlier, which was great. Nice. We wanted to get out of that crap hole. Yeah, I can imagine. It was bad there. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, I realized I had a meeting. This is almost five. It's about five minutes before the actual attack. So I missed being killed by five minutes. Wow. 
that never leaves my mind. I always stick to that. Yeah. I was going to ask that question. I thought you were in the office because I know from buddies no. that were on destroyers that you're right next to the decks. Yeah. Right yeah. next to what got hit where ground zero yeah. is. But I did pass that area within minutes um, where ground zero was back after the training room, yeah. which is under the flight deck aft. And um, we were having a meeting, uh, MWR meeting about uh, getting TVs. That didn't take long. Didn't even take a minute yeah. to say yeah. And then right after that, uh, you heard the deafening sound of the blast and you felt an 8,500 ton ship lift up under your feet oh and could see the bulkheads ripple. Because I'm kind of half in and out of the the, the uh, frame of the door yeah. um, when it happened. We all look at each other in shock. It's just dead silence. It was eerie silence. Yeah. And the XO was with us, got on the IVIX phone and it was dead. So he says, pass by word of mouth, go to general quarters. So now all this technology is gone. Yeah. You know, we're manning fire stations or, you know, repair parties uh, by word of mouth, damage controls having to be passed by word of mouth. Casualty issues are being passed by word of mouth. And I was luckily uh, back aft by the aft battle dress station which I agreed to man since my old corpsman skill sets were still of, could be, you know, put to good use there. Yeah. The main battle dress station along with the mess decks and the galley were destroyed right. or inatta- unattainable or just not usable period. Yeah. Doc Moser luckily was forward sleeping, taking a nap after he ate lunch. Cause if he was in the uh, mess, he might've been injured bad. Cause uh, yeah. half the mess was in there in the chief's mess. Yeah. I, I didn't realize it at this point yet, but uh, right. when I went to the battle dress station, there was about 20 casualties there, uh, fractured jaws, some other fractures, uh, shrapnel to the face, people blinded by the blast temporarily. So we set up a triage station at the laundry room. It was right proximal to the um, battle dress station. Okay. And baby doc showed up with a striker corpsman and we started triaging. They started treating, got word, that there was a more serious uh, injured towards the mess decks, obviously. Yeah. And galley. So I told baby doc to take over and she's a assistant and sort of crew members with treating. And they did a hell of a job. You know, time in something like that is just not measurable. Um, It's, I can't explain it. It's just different, but it was, it was incredible with all the training we did not only with damage control, but with medical training, it made the difference in saving lives and shipmates. Uh, the yeah. dressings that were put on by other cold sailors uh, was just wonderful what they did, whether it was a fractured jaw or broken limb, whatever. They did a hell of a job in treating their fellow shipmates. And uh, as I was making my way up topside, there's one of my chiefs, Mark Darwin. Uh, he's injured. He had fractured. Uh, I had them rule out, but it looked like he had fractured collarbone, maybe ribs, couldn't hardly breathe. And he was asking me about his guys in the ship and I just had to tell him to be quiet so I could assess them and yeah. have them taken out. And, and as I'm treating them, I look up and there's guys coming by us because we're kind of midships, you know, cross deck. Uh, if you can imagine that passageway between the port and starboard side. Um, and I can see guys uh, going by sailors going by with stretchers and some of them had chiefs. And I'm, it just hit me that I realized, Oh my gosh, that, you know, the mess probably got hit. Yeah. So, once I was done with Mark, I was told there was a really seriously injured sailor in the log room, which has regular, a regular door on it. And uh, 
Um, there was a really seriously injured 19 year old sailor there. We'd just done a career development board on him. That's the first thing that crossed my mind. And, and, and he, he was in terrible shape. Yeah. Um, and anyway, we had him put on a door and taken out because we, we either couldn't access or we didn't have enough stretcher, right. uh, stoke stretchers. So we took him back aft and, um, on the flight deck and there's more casualties out on the flight deck being treated. First thing I did was scream airway, breathing circulation. Let me know if they're serious. Uh, that's all you, all you can do, you know, is just right. triage and yep. let the coal sailors that weren't involved with damage control or anything else stand by their shipmate and just monitor them. You know, the ones, especially that were in bad shape, but this young man, um, he, like I said, he was in horrific condition and uh, i knew he was probably expectant but i tried to do cpr on him which wasn't successful i knew he, he was dying and uh chief one of the other chiefs came up to help me out and then and then he put his hand on my shoulder and he said james you know you need to you need to look around man they need you yeah because i was the only one there back aft on the flight deck and so i had a couple of cold sailors uh take him over to the helo tower uh, where they could, you know, be by his side until the end. Yeah. And uh, I did say a prayer over my, you know, being, I did serve with the Marines. And when you didn't have religious petty officers, Doc was it, you know? Yeah. And so I said a prayer. I didn't know this young man's religion, but I knew it was the right thing to do, pray for his soul. Yeah. And that, that he not suffer anymore. Um, and, and the crew, they said, were watching. And I had tears in my eyes. I mean, it was tough to hold yourself, but you knew you had to hold yourself together. And then, so I went over and started triaging other patients, uh, coal, coal shipmates. And, uh, one of the sailors, um, had internal injuries pretty bad. Uh, he was my first guy to get out of there. And the word got to me that Doc Mosier was, uh, at the missile decks with the morphine and, and re-triaging, which was wonderful. I knew Doc was alive and treating patients. Yeah. Yeah. So I had him sent up first. He, uh, actually survives living today, but they lost him a couple of times in the nightingale flight. He had uh, ruptured internal organs, uh, fractured limbs, and that young man fought. Uh, and like I said, is living today. That's awesome. This, uh, fireman Jeremy Stewart lives up in Virginia. Yeah. Then there was a guy named uh, Petty Officer Gokul. He had flesh coming out of the soles of his boots. They were going to take him off. I said, no, just reinforce his boots with dressings and let's get him taken up. So he was second. And then third was a guy I talked earlier on the bridge wing before we pulled in. Uh, and we called him Boss Hog Saunders, Petty Officer Saunders, <laughs> OS2, big guy from Danville, Virginia. Yeah. And, you know, he could, this is a big guy that could tolerate some pain. His, his, his legs yeah. were in pretty bad shape. The, uh, the corpsman striker, his name was Sanchez. He's now a chief IDC out yeah. west, out there in San Diego. But uh, he said, should I take him off and reinforce him? There's still blood. I said, no, leave him on. Just reinforce the dressings. Let's get him up next. And he was going to be the challenge because getting the patients up from the flight deck up to the missile deck, that ladder w was pretty steep. Okay. But it was amazing. When your adrenaline's running, Yeah. it's amazing what sailors can do. Yep. So, and that's what we did. And we monitored and got uh, 39 plus patients off an hour and a half with the help uh, Bosa's mate and some of the crew had to manhandle the gangplank. And you know, those are heavy. Yeah. Those are not light. Um, and Jerry rig it so that we could get them down that. And we had to trust the locals to take uh, our coal sailors over to the local hospital, which was not the best. It's a third world hospital and they're outside, they're rioting. Yeah. 
And Jesus. typically the Yemeni carry around swords and knives and, and weapons, you know, guns. Yeah. I didn't so, know you guys even went to a local hospital yeah. like in the, in reading. It sounded like they all went to, it was like Landstuhl and uh, I think no, French no. hospital or something. Yeah. Was, Djibouti in Djibouti. Djibouti. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Well, no, that didn't happen. They had, some had, a lot of them had to go wow. the serious ones over to that hospital. Uh, you know, they had glass bottle, um, IVs. I mean, it was just, yeah. but luckily there was an American missionaries there, doctors, and they oh, okay. responded and helped out as well. That's awesome. uh, reports came back that jewelry was stolen. Um, and you know, that stuff happens. And then, uh, yeah. all I wanted to make sure is they got it out of their life. And yeah, I'll tell you leadership in crisis. Here's another example, you know, as people thinking out of the box, we were following the lead of firemen and E3s and fours that were technical experts and chiefs and senior petty officers would do what they say because they knew what the yeah. hell they were doing. You know, and yeah. that's, what, that's the right thing to do. Yeah, uh, I XL, agree. That's a huge thing. It's big. And, 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 it, and that helped to save the ship as well as uh, another th- example was XO. You know, um, he was the one that had uh, them Jerry rig a tent out back, put patients under that keep them cool. Cause you know, that part of the world, it's hot as hell. Yeah. Yeah. And um, then he sent over uh, a security force with the patients to also be walking blood banks. I mean, the XO thought of this, man. That's crazy. Uh, I mean, I, yeah. yeah, that wouldn't. I mean, maybe the tent, but like the sending those guys over, I wouldn't. They, I would yeah, get them to the hospital. Like, I, I don't know that that that's amazing. But would that the XO was saying everybody was doing their part and thinking on their toes yeah. and out of the box, you that's know, awesome. and that those were leadership decisions made on the spot no second questions do it you know yeah um so it saved lives uh big time and then the other thing you were mentioning about them getting on that nightingale the nightingale came in and they were they were targeting it the m and e yeah their their support uh their anti-aircraft missiles were targeted and so they were getting alerts on their bird had to turn yeah. around and come back and like you know, the embassy's like, what the hell, you know? That's what I was going to ask, too, is I read just quickly, like, the the aftermath part of, like, where people were trying to get in and secure the coal and help you guys out. And it was just like, yeah, they were, like, hostile, like, towards everything. Yeah, and it was it's just archaic. Like, holy, holy crap. Like, how did you well, keep the army, get in there? Yeah, the Army Air Force were scary at first. The first few days, uh, yeah. the, the MiGs. The few MIGs they had, they were old MIGs, but still they could yeah. do some damage. Yeah. Uh, they were strafing us, dude. Really? They were strafing our ship. We're like, what the That's hell? Insane. We're going to get attacked again. So, yeah. you know, you, we just got blown up. We got this 40 by 60 foot hole in the side. And you don't know if there's going to be a second attack yeah. to finish us off. You know, Al-Qaeda wanted a trophy, dude. Yeah. And then, and then uh, the Army comes in, sets up a perimeter, and their weapons are pointed at us. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, so we had to get word out. We had to get word out, you know, what the heck? And uh, finally they turned, you know, obviously their uh, their army into a defensive, not an offensive posture, you know? Yeah. That's crazy. Um, and then- Because that would scare me as in, in your or any leader's position for all those sailors going to the hospital and anybody leaving the ship at all. Like, just like, I, okay, well, what's happening to my guys at the hospital right now if they're pointing guns at me right here? Like, yeah. That's insane. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I think also by the grace of God, everything went as smooth as it could. But um, the challenges afterward, after we got everybody off and started trying to stabilize the ship, which that was incredible for the first three or four days. Um, you know, we're listing 15 degrees. 
the main machinery rooms flooded out, non-accessible. The supply rooms are flooded out. Uh, we have no comms. All the missiles are gone. They're dead, you know, because they've been moved around five inch guns down. So, you know, all we had was bullets and grenades, dude. That's yeah. it. And I think we could have got that five inch gun if we really needed to, because people were ready to, uh, you know, I think that was the worst feeling was not being able to retaliate to an enemy yeah. like that. Cause if you, you know, we're Americans, man, we want to kick out. <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah. You know, where the hell are they? We want to take them out, dude. You know, but we, we knew we had to keep our calm and that was part of the leadership was making people do it. Cause one of my chiefs, man, he ripped down, you know, when you pull a port, you pull up the local flag. He ripped down yeah. the Yemeni flag, was stomping on it, cursing it. But you know, I don't blame him. He yeah. just saw dead shipmates and put them in yeah. body bags, you know. I had to help put five of my shipmates in body bags. That was not anything I would want anybody to ever go through. And that sticks with me forever. It'll be yeah. forever in my mind, um, putting those those sailors in body bags. And we had, um, you know, it took 12 days to get all the deceased out of from inside the ship because they were either part of it and in places that were just not accessible yeah. without divers. Yeah. And that was a leadership challenge. Yeah. You know, crew had to sleep out on the flight deck. You saw the pictures because there's no ventilation. We have one main generator working. The other two are gone. All four main engines are down. Yeah. Port shaft is bent. Um, that's how strong this blast was, dude. Yeah. It rippled yeah. the flight deck. It bent the uh, yard arms up on the on the uh, main staff is, is, that's incredible yeah hearing you describe it and and reading about it are so different because like when you describe it i'm like how the hell did they repair this thing you know what i mean like the damage that you that you're describing and, and then just like seeing the effect of the blast when it happened i'm like i can't even i can't fathom how they like got that thing and repaired it like it's just that's it took, insane it took two years and yeah. about 300 over 300 million dollars but you could see why but and there was a point uh that they were going to decommission her yeah but kirk the captain i credit him and the admirals that were in there with the politicians said what kind of message basically are we going to right. send al-qaeda and our enemy yeah i was just about to say that i'm really glad they didn't do that and, and and here we are today, in your face, she's been on six or seven, yep. at least I know of, deployments, and a couple of those right through the uh, Gulf of Aden, yeah, in their face. Yeah, I was out there last, so last year, um, the CS1 on her that made Chief was one of my A-school instructors, and I went out there for her season. She was, she was the ch her Chief also was one of my A-school instructors, but had already made Chief, so I flew out there and surprised her for the Chief season, but. Um, but yeah, like I got to hang out with the whole Coles Chiefs mess. I got a, one of their sweet, uh, coyote brown hats with the Chiefs anchors on the back. So cool. yeah, that's cool. I was, I'm really, and it was just cool to like be around those guys and just understand that that's still a thing that the USS Cole is still around and, and that story and the, and the importance of it and the, and the just like memorializing what the, the sailors that gave their lives in that incident, it's like that that that's a living memorial to them all the time that that ship is still sailing and fighting and doing what it does. And it's like the perfect memorial because it's yeah. still fighting. You know what I mean? Like no matter what happens, it's amazing. And I'm really glad that they, they ended up doing that. But the um, leadership challenges those first few nights too, where, you know, we, we didn't have, we had to worry about heat stress. People were down below yeah. with battle lanterns yeah. monitoring uh, the bulkheads for, 
collapsing or flooding increasing. And so, you know, you've got fuel oil spilled inside, not just outside the ship from ruptured tanks. Um, We're lucky she didn't become a fireball. Um, And then some of the sailors didn't want to go in the ship, the skin of the ship. I didn't blame them because they know that their shipmates were still in there deceased. Yeah. And so we didn't force that on them. We just had them do other things outside to help out. Yeah. Now, there there was some that sat around, were depressed, um, moping given up. And so that's when you put your foot up there. Yeah. And uh, you give them a choice. Either you get in here and you get to be part of this or you're going to send you off the ship. And that statement alone was enough to get them motivated because they did not want to look like they were cowardice uh, or gave up or anything like that. Yeah. And, and it wasn't many, it was just a few, but you know, in our position as chiefs, you know, that can become infectious. Yeah. And you know, you don't want that to happen. So you've got to, you got to tell people to take 20 milligrams and suck it up and do the right thing by the ship and the command, you know, yeah, it's what you do. Uh, it was hard, but you know, and I had publicly chewed some of them out in front of everybody, but I knew they needed a little motivation. Yeah. And that's what it took. Um, same with other, other leaders on the ship and, you know, when, and, the, and going through that, you know, we took, like I said, 12 days to get our shipmates out of there. We had a, um, Side boys post for that department of the where the sailor was from. The captain was the only one when they brought him up topside to identify him. Nobody else. He didn't want none of the crew to see uh, our shipmates in the condition they were in okay. before they put them in the body bag. And then uh, they draped the body bag with obviously American flag. And we pipe our shipmate ashore for the last time on their journey, final journey home to their family. Uh, and it was hard. And then we did our own ceremony after that last, uh, Shipmate was taken off and it was back on the fantail and we had a soiled, that soiled flag that there's pictures of back there was sold from the blast from the water going over the ship, the display, you know, the displaced water. And it actually uh, put the, some of the fire out because there was reports there was a fireball when the explosion happened. What we did was we were going to take down that evening, uh, dusk, the old flag and put a new one up. So we took it down respectfully, and then when we put the new one up, we shot we shown eighteen battle lanterns on her for each soul lost. I'm sorry, seventeen. Blame my last seventeen. Um, and the reason I'm thinking eighteen because the last light was the halogen light that's shown on that flag when yeah. it was up to the top of the pole to show them son of a bitch would cross the way that we were not defeated, you know, <laughs> yeah, and that we were driven to get her out of there. And it was motivating because the first back going back the first few days too, there was psych warfare. They were over there partying. They had speakers out shooting guns, jumping up and down. You could see them with the big eyes. And I know they were trying to demotivate and take the wind out of our sails. And it just made us more pissed off than anything, man. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And that's why, that's why I said, Surprised they didn't get shot at it if they're shooting guns and stuff because that's all yeah you know everybody's already on edge and they want to re- they want to retaliate against whatever happened. And- Absolutely, brother. That's that's what that's. But you know we had to make sure everybody contained themselves. Yeah. the The other thing sticking out of the box, leadership wise, is uh, you know I got with Doc was um, there was also spoiled food in the, in, the, in the skin of the ship, and so the yeah. flies started getting really bad, and you know they carry disease. Yeah. So, you know, we had to get, I told Doc, we need to get preventive medicine in there. And then 
we found out it's a malaria endemic area, but luckily we were out on the harbor. And so I don't think we really had to worry about mosquitoes getting to us, but still those are the things that you had to think of as a leader outside the box that were also uh, yeah. leadership challenges that could decimate your crew. Yeah. Uh, the heads didn't work. You can't have go down below and, and use right. the show, you know? Oh, wow. Yeah. And I wouldn't even uh, thought of that either. Yeah. And uh, that could be a dysentery, you know, history right there. Yeah. Uh, again, decimating the crew. But all we had was just one uh, toilet, or you can even want to call it that. Yeah. It was more like a shed box over a hole on, on that little uh, pier there that we were on mm-hmm. uh, that you pooped out, you know, basically your, you know, whatever did your business into the water directly. Wow. Because it's a you know, third world country. Yeah. You know? But so those were the kind of things that you had to think of as a leader outside the box. And there, you know, there was damage control uh, challenges as well. I mean, yeah. we lost our generator and it was important for comms because we were hooking our comms up to it. Uh, once we got support, got the Marines in there, the fast company from Yorktown, and yep. uh, we got the SEALs in there to set up a perimeter. Um, but we needed that power. And when the generator went down, it was one of the young firemen, uh, Engineman, um, that actually thought about uh, taking one of the new uh, uh, high-pressure diesel compressors that we got with that SCBA system and jerry-rigging the flask for that turbine engine to turn it. And it worked. Oh, wow. And you don't read that. You don't read that shit in a book. Yeah. I mean, this is stuff. And like you said, those master chiefs in the, in the chiefs mess, when you're going through the season, sharing that experience. Well, this kind of stuff too is so important and stuff you don't read in a book, but you learn in a classroom from others that are warfare called or have that experience and what stories to share. And another motivator was, uh, one of the HTs or somebody had, uh, Jerry rigged the decom station. We had blood on us and, um, all kinds of soot and stuff. And so four or five days out, I see a line. Everybody's standing there with their ditty bags. Taking all showers. smiling. <laughs> using the, yeah, using the decon locker. But what, if, you know, but it motivated the crew, man. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then I had a, a buddy of mine that was CMC on the Hawes. And uh, first thing he says, James, man, what do you need? You know, they came aboard yeah. on a small boat. And uh, being with the Marine Corps, you know, I, the first thing I thought of, brother, was Chili Mac. I mean, <laughs> when you're in the field with the Marines, hot yeah. chow and chili mac, and especially, it'll do the number. And yeah. sure enough, man, that evening. Just pans of chili mac. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to tell you what, buddy, buddy, it was, they were recharged and ready to go for round yep. two. Yeah. You know? That's crazy. But th- those are the things that made all the little things that made all the difference, you yeah. know, in a situation like that. Wow. Yeah. And I was going to, I guess, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but like, I was thinking about it. Like I couldn't even imagine being in that situation. Like I've been in a handful of small submarine fires and it's like, it's enough to get your adrenaline going and for you to think about the worst case scenario, but then the crew reacts exactly how they're supposed to and it gets taken care of and it's not a big deal. Um, but the, just to be in that situation, I was thinking to myself, like, I can't, can't even imagine how complicated and stressful and just like, all the things that would be going on and like how, how hard it would be to deal with it. But it also kind of sounds like, like it was simple, but not easy. Like it was like the crew understood what was going on and they just reacted accordingly. And a lot of the, a lot of the normal leadership challenges that you have almost faded to the, to the background because they just understood that there was only one priority and it was fighting the ship and taking care of everybody that needed taken care of. 
And so it was almost like it, it simplified a lot of things because everybody was immediately in lockstep heading in the same direction with the, I mean, you like you talked about, you had to kick a few people in the butt to get them motivated, but it was like, it was a little simpler, like to where there wasn't so many complex leadership issues. It was more just the management of fighting the ship, like just making sure everybody's doing all the things. And then the, you know, never underestimate the ingenuity of SME force, man, because they're going to come no. up with showers and generator <laughs> fixes and stuff. So yeah. it sounds like everybody was just already motivated and headed in the right direction on their own. And it's like, nobody told them to do that. Well, like, they just did it. And it's, so it's like, it almost sounds like it got simplified a little bit. Yeah. And then, uh, like you said, you know, your D guts don't give up the ship and they knew yeah. it. We yeah. did not want Al Qaeda to have their trophy and have us, be a, 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 a video somewhere to recruit right. others. Um, yeah. You know, that, that, that's big. And we know the end goal was to get uh, what our ship was America. It represented our, our country. It was our country. And by God, we were going to get her to hell out of there, whatever it took, um, yeah. man and woman. And, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of every one of them, what they did. When we finally got to that goal of getting her out, and by the way, they did get a main engine working. They could have turned a prop, dude. They could have, we wouldn't have been going like five, 10 knots, but, but still the fact that they could do that says a lot as well. That's incredible. But we had the ocean going tug come down from Byran, started to pull us out. And as we're making our way out, uh, the I seaman put the speakers out and was playing patriotic music and we're all (laughs) man in the rails. Okay. And the Yemeni patrol guys, they had like a Yemeni patrol boats there. They were actually standing there running us honors. So we did. But when we got past them, and I'm up there on the bridge wing with the XO, one of our crazy IC men, IC2, plays American Badass by Kid Rock. (laughs) (laughs) We've got, we have got news people on there, dude. You know how XOs are. XOs friggin' losing it, running down the damn, down the ladder wells. Cut it off, cut it off, you know. It's too late. It's too late, dude. That's and, hilarious. Uh, well, the, the, the unintended consequence of that was Kid Rock found out and heard it and read it. And that's he put amazing. a concert on for the crew in North. Oh, that's so cool. And gave all the money to the families that lost their loved ones. That's amazing. That sounds of course awesome. we know how he is anyway. He's got a big heart. People know yeah. that. And he really loves our military. But yeah. And then uh, but yeah, so that's that's a inside story there for you. <laughs> Um, That's, I've never that was, heard that before. That's yeah, awesome. and he actually, he actually, when he came to Hampton Roads, came to we had to set up a temporary quarters in Norfolk while the mm-hmm. ship was being repaired yeah. and uh, and assessed. And he came up there and visited with us, so we all got awesome. uh, a picture opportunity. We ate chow yeah, and chow yeah, all with him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that That's was so good cool. for the crew. You know, that was really good yeah. for the crew. That's so cool. That's hilarious. <laughs> Shout out to the IC men that played that over the winter sea. <laughs> That's amazing. That sounds like something a submariner would do. That's why I'm dying about it because it's like there's some I funny see- stories out there about some shenanigans that happen in the submarine force. And um, that was Petty like, Officer Croft. That's good, the name. Well, good on you, Petty Officer Croft. I dig it. That's, <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, the man. I it, what? So I guess what were the leadership challenges that followed? Like, so you're talking about this, sh- we, we loaded the ship up, put her on the, the transport vessel to, to bring her home and, and get her repaired. Um, what were the leadership challenges that followed that as, cause I don't know, I, I guess I don't know exactly when you detached and went to Sigonella. So like what followed as far as 
once well, all the adrenaline wears off and we're not in that high stress environment. Yeah, this was this, uh, this whole thing was called Operation uh, Determined Response. We were a thousand nautical miles from the nearest Navy ship. Uh, I, I know we could have got other support from other services if we really were in a, a bind. Right. Uh, but that just says how far away we were sea-wise sea from many Navy ships, yeah. our own. And our Canadian friends were the first ones to come in there and respond and help us, to give them credit, HMS Marlboro. But, uh, yeah, there was the plan was to put her on that uh, heavy lift ship mm-hmm. and send her home around the Horn of Africa. And the reason why the threat con was still high that Al Qaeda still wanted to finish the job and attack the ship. Right. And so the ship was well protected. We had a high security in the area while she was being loaded. We offloaded onto LCUs and went on the uh, USS Tarawa with a Marg where she would uh, go ahead and uh, transport us north off the coast of Oman where we were flown. It was like freaking being to me, it was like, uh, um, What's that Vietnam movie where the da 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 da? da? You know uh, what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking I'm try, about. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the name. But anyway, I felt yeah. like that. I mean, we weren't we weren't attacking or nothing, but we had all these CH-46s. Yeah. Once we made it up far enough north and loaded on these helos, and they took us to an Air Force base uh, from oh, wow. Desert Storm and Shield, where our bird was waiting. And uh, so we waited there. We headed out, and we actually flew the opposite direction of where we were going. Because we, that's how much of a threat they still, uh, the intel detected. Yeah. And when they felt we were safe, then we started flying towards Rhine mine um, and uh, landed there to refuel overnight and then headed home. But there was a lot of story sharing then and experience, I should say more so, not stories, experience sharing because we really had to... Uh, get to wrap ourselves around what we just went through and everybody deals with a difference, young and old, you know, young people, especially uh, had a hard time because, you know, they would join the Navy to get educated, you know, and those kind of things. And they didn't think that they'd ever be seeing something real like this. And they did. And seeing people die, their best friends, shipmates. Uh, So, yeah. And so we, we did that when we were in Rhine mine. Some of them snuck over to the club and got beer and got, little tipsy, but they deserved it. They earned it. Yeah. Um, I didn't because I just, I was still yeah. decompressing myself and I'm, I'm the kind of person that needs some alone time. Yeah. Um, but, um, we got home, uh, you know, it was a, obviously the big reception with, uh, Mick Pond and, uh, SecNav and CNO and all there, yeah. uh, and down, um, families, you know, grabbed up their member and just like ran home because, they had them, you know, they're safe. Yeah. Yep. Uh, a lot of hugging and loving. Yeah. Um, but the ones that got medevac, some of them, uh, they didn't get that, you know, they didn't yeah. get to stay with the crew as, as one and talk about everything that happened, kind of decompress from it. And one of them was one of the chiefs, um, that was slept over me. He was gunner's mate chief. And, uh, he, uh, he lived in Florida and that's where he was. And, uh, Oh, I'm sorry. He got medevac through Florida. But anyway, I think he lived up, sorry, he lived up in uh, Virginia. Yeah. And um, anyway, bottom line is he got separated. So he's going through a divorce as well as uh, dealing with that and not talking to anybody. He was injured and he was staying with a friend. Well, bottom line is uh, he stole his buddy's gun and went out to a hunting shack out there in Chesapeake and 
and, and took and took himself out. And I found out because I, you know, after the fact, took orders when it was time for me to leave because we were at that headquarters in Norfolk, uh, separate of the ship. And I and I felt it was time to go at April that next year, uh, and let someone else take over. This guy needed to decompress from it all. Yeah. And and um, <clears throat> so I took orders to Sig, and it was uh, unique for me because Mick Pond Hurt called me, okay. and he and he said, uh, "What do you want to do?" I said, Mick Pond, I want to get out of the 9580 program temporarily, not permanently. I want to go back to the Corman community so I can go somewhere where I can decompress as a leader, but yet helps right there. Yeah. Because I'm, you know, I, I got to be good. I got to be good for the Navy. I got to be good for that sailor, right. you know, and, and, that, and that's how you think. You're not weak. You just got to think that way, you know, that, you know, PTSD is something you don't mess around with. Yeah. Um, so I went to SIG as a uh, senior enlisted for the command, as a command master chief, all right? Uh, but not in a 9580 capacity, again, as an HMCM. Okay. And that's unique to do that. That doesn't happen, dude. I don't know how many times that's even ever happened in our in our master chief community, especially command master chief community. Um, so that's when I got word, though, uh, uh, as I'm getting back to, I was sitting in the office and uh, the chaplain's there and I knew, oh, God, something happened that one, you know, yeah. you knew right away something was wrong with the crew. And that's when he told me about Mark um, and that, that he committed suicide. And it was, it was hard. It was hard. Um, and then of course, while I was over there in SIG, nine 11 happens, oh, wow. you know, they're telling mass chief, cut the damn yeah. TV on. And it's like, it wouldn't go away, man. Timeline that, that didn't even, yeah. Wasn't even, even a year. Yeah. And yeah. so you felt like we were the prelude to nine 11 and we still yeah. do. We felt yeah. that uh, our inability to attack and uh, get some revenge, get some, whatever, how you want to put it, yeah. and show them we weren't taking any crap uh, didn't happen. I really feel, and this is personal, James, but I feel it emboldened our enemy. Yeah. You know? I mean, I'm we sure knew they weren't going to give up. The perceived success on a world stage of the, the coal being attacked had to have. Like, I, of course it did. You know what I mean? Like, it's even, like a jumping even point. They, yeah, even though they didn't – I. Uh, accomplish probably what their goal was of, of taking out the ship entirely. Like it was still, I'm sure perceived as a huge victory and I'm sure they got a lot of like motivation out of that or whatever. But yeah. That, and I didn't need God, that, that just, just thinking about like, I don't think about it in the same way cause I didn't live it. So like, I wasn't even thinking about that, that five minutes after you're like, feel like you're probably getting to a place that you can start to like decompress and, and, heal you know it's like then 9 11 happens and it's just like jesus here we go like, again here we go again yeah and and another side story um kirk lippo the captain and some a couple of crew member were actually working in the pentagon when it was hit oh uh, when it got hit good grief now kirk he was actually that day on 9 11 wasn't at the pentagon he was Thank at God. cia headquarters okay get this he was up there talking to him about coal and the you know I guess some of uh, some sensitive issue concerning it as well as um, repercussions. But Kirk told him my captain, and I sure and I truly believe he was able to stay in, and he would have been an admiral, yeah. no doubt. But he told him he said it's going to take a sentinel event for us to get it. Yeah. And and then next thing you know he leaves, and as he's leaving, this uh, CIA uh, officer calls him back and says. Kirk, remember what you just said? And he shows him the TV and there's a Pentagon getting hit by one of the birds. 
So he had to drive. He drove back over there. Yeah. And uh, as he's driving over there, um, and I got this firsthand from Kurt. Um, he saw him bringing the kids out of the nursery. So he pulls over to get out to help him. Yeah. And then these four or five black SUVs pull up and they screech to a halt. One of them rolls down the window because we had FBI agents on coal investigating that bombing. Yeah. And uh, what the hell are you doing out here, Kirk? Kirk, it was one of the agents on our on our oh, case. Wow. I mean, this is how small of a world this is, dude. Wow. I mean, when, when, and the concern of uh, terrorism and attacks and all that. Yeah. It's like it's like a magnet. It's like you can't get away from it anymore That's once crazy. you've been in it, you know? Oh, my God. That's nuts. It is. Yeah. Good. But, wow. uh, you know, we, we, uh, we've got relationships with the FBI, yeah. uh, with others, NCIS. Uh, because of the years of going down there uh, watching – this case get put together and, and the challenges that go with it. Yeah. When I first saw that bad guy, Al Nashiri, um, he came into that damn courtroom, man. Like he was a freaking WWE rock star bouncing hands in the air. I mean, he had that kind of attitude. That's crazy. Oh, you just wanted to, you know, we're behind a, bulletproof glass in the gallery of course yeah looking out at, at the uh, courtroom and looking directly at the judge but man you just wanted to jump through that gra- glass all of us did and just you know you can only yeah. imagine what we, yeah. what we wanted to do man that's what we wanted to, to to yeah to have to and who like who do you travel down there with for the trials and stuff because you gotta I, I gotta imagine that it's just like it's a lottery um, oh, okay. Nine eleven's worse because there's, you know, 3000 family yeah. members and that's probably double or more than that of other family members. Yeah. too. Right. Um, but still for us, uh, we, uh, send down 10, about five, uh, members with a spouse okay. or a significant other, it's um, tough. family member. It is. Yeah. And a lot, a lot of crew hasn't went because of that. Yeah. I was going to, uh, yeah, it just opens up yep. old wounds. And some of us that have been, there's a few of us that really have been pretty religious about going down there. And it's just, we want yeah. the judge to see us as well as gold star families. Yeah. Uh, they want, they, we want that judge to see us and know we're not letting this go that we want yeah. to see it to the end. Yeah. And awesome. even though it's, can you believe it? We're 20 years here. This October yeah, that into the bombing. Mind that that's not all adjudicated already. That no. trials are still happening. 20 and years 15 later. or whatever years. Yeah. Into trial and, uh, all the due process that's been going on with this case. Yeah, that's crazy. Wow, man, I, <laughs> I'm having a hard time even wrapping my mind around all this. Um, how? So how? Like, how? How would you say this is something that I try to? I, I've talked to a few guys about just giant, traumatic, life changing events that they've had during their careers, and it's kind of like I, I always like to ask, like, how your leadership, like perspective or um, maybe some of like your principles have changed since going through that event. Like, cause a lot of us, I think it, you get it from a book or you get it from the chief season or you just get it from your experiences that are the normal, like day to day leadership type experiences. And you, you kind of build your methods and your style around that. But like, how do you, how do you think you changed as a leader after having gone through this, this crisis? Um, I've learned that flexible leadership is so important. Um, 
there's you know obviously there's a time and a place for compassion there's a yeah. time and a place for uh kicking butt and taking names um we all learned that as chiefs and he, and it just really takes common sense to really think about how you're going to meet the challenge and and in the, the community or command you're in you know you have to take into fact the community uh and i'm talking sub surface air whatever yeah. They all operate in a, a different culture. And then, you know, how are you going to infuse your leadership styles into that? Yeah. Um, again, being flexible as a leader. Um, and sometimes there's things you're going to have to do that you don't like, but, you know, in order to get the mission done, uh, you're going to have to do it. And that's what really keeps you focused is, is the mission and doing what's right by the mission, but at the same time taking care of your sailors, which is a uh, uh, and the, and, and, and the relationship in the triad, all that, uh, yeah. is a, is a challenge to balance. It really is. It's a challenge to balance. And when I was on coal, I never, uh, went out to the chief's room. They had a chief's room where they decompress, get, do whatever. I told them I didn't want to know about it, that I'd go out and do Comrail projects and stuff because, um, I had to worry about my own reputation as a command master chief. Yeah. Um, and and keep together that perception of professionalism and whatever uh, as a CMC working with his CO and XO and at the same time working with his mess. So again, that's how I operated. I mean, I went out with chiefs now and then, but I didn't yeah. want appearance of favoritism. I didn't want appearance yeah. of anything like that. Um, so I always made sure when I was with my chiefs, it was a group scenario. That's group cool, man. I, I, it's, it warms you know? my heart to hear you say that because I've experienced both and and I have this, I have this big notebook, uh, just says Cobb notes on it. And I, I would, a lot of times it was, I'd be sitting in a meeting or I'd be sitting in like a, in the mess or just experiencing something or, or be post experience, like get off watch and something happened. And I'd go down and just write in my book, like when I'm a Cobb, this is how I'm going to, I'm not going to do it that way, or I'm not going to do it this way to make sure. And that, that was one of the things that I always kind of like, I was the only guy that my Cobb's name was Cobb. It wasn't Mike or it wasn't James or it wasn't Tim. It was Cobb. Like I was never calling him by his first name unless I, we were doing a group event at his house or something. Like if we barbecued, yeah. If you sure, were off the but, ship or something. Yeah. Yeah. But it, even yeah. in the mess when the doors closed, everybody's calling him by his first name. And it's just like, there's to me, it, I, I always looked at it the same way you just described it. Like there's gotta be a degree of separation and me and my last Cobb got into it a bunch of times because we would be in meetings and he would say things that were just him expressing his opinion. But it's like, when you say that, it's not the individual talking, it's the, the chief of the boat. Like, so it's like, you just influence the opinions of every chief in this room. So now my argument doesn't matter anymore because everybody's getting like, Oh, okay. Now this is what the cop thinks. And so I always yeah. thought that there needed to be that, that separation, you know what I mean? Like where it's like, not that you're not part of it and you're not guiding it and you're not setting the tone in the culture, but it's like, there's still gotta, you can't, I can't have one guy coming over to my house watching football if I'm in that position and then there's perceived favoritism. And it's yeah. just like, I, there's a lot of guys that it seems, seems like they just try to treat that guy like, yeah, he's the leader of the mess, but he's, he's also a member, just a member of the mess. And it's like, not really he's the leader and it's like to be that leader effectively i i always felt like there had to be that separation so that's yeah i'm glad you said that because it made it makes me feel like i'm on the right track in, in well, figuring it, that piece out it um it keeps you out of trouble 
for me, yeah, I thought. Yeah, for sure. You know, and like, like on Cole, when I, like I said, when I told the Chiefs to go out, I'd get the news, like, for instance, the selectees or even the crew. And I took control of all the Comrail projects as a command master chief. I knew I could have had somebody else do it, but yeah. it was my way of being able to share time with the crew in a professional manner and a fun manner. Yeah. You know, we're out there helping a local zoo, painting an old folks home, whatever, yeah, together. That's cool. But you're still that, building relationships in a personal way too, but but you're 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 still wearing that title as command master chief, you know? Yeah. Well, that's cool too. That's an interesting like take on it. Cause like you taking charge of a, a thing like that, I, I was always thinking to myself and having never been in the position, it's hard for me to know for sure if I would have the bandwidth to do it and if it's even the right answer. But from the like division and department chief positions that I've been in, I'm looking up and I'm like, I feel like in that position, there's things like that, that I could do to take something off of my chief's plates too. Like I, I need you to be a division chief and I need you to take care of your sailors and I need you to manage whatever collateral duties you have and maintenance and all those other demands on your time and bandwidth. It's like, I feel like I have a little more time to manage some things that like a zone inspection program or like a, a Comrel program or whatever, where it's like, I don't need to put that on a chief's plate that already is juggling flaming chainsaws. It's like, I could probably take some stress off them so they can be more effective by, by managing a program like that. Exactly. And then you have other people in the command, other petty officers, whatever that, you may find may or may not have some related skill sets to help you with that. And yeah. they do. So yeah. that way you helping their evals out as well, yeah. uh, you know, and, and giving them some pluses. You don't take credit, give them the credit. Right. If yeah. you know what I mean, so yeah. that they can promote later down the road, but at the same time, learn how to run thing, uh Comrail project or whatever you yeah. may want to do um, as your own uh, task. But at the same time, again, like I said, you're building relationships. That's cool. Um I got like one last question that I've been waiting to ask someone like you. Uh, and I talked to Paul Kingsbury a little bit about it, but like, how do you think it's different in the mess? Like back when you made chief to now and like, what are some of the things that it feels like there's been a cultural shift just in having talked to some chiefs that made it in the nineties and, and uh, seeing a lot of like conversations that happen on the internet, like where <laughs> stuff comes out and you see all the old salts coming out with all this criticism with the back in my day comments. And it's like, what was it like back then? And how do you perceive it to be different? And is it like, what are the good and bad changes that you've seen? Now, I, I think the, the worst thing that's happened is PC political correctness. Yeah. And, you know, there's a time and a place for that, but, when it comes to being a leader in a, in a warfighter environment, some of that has to be put to the side and, and you've got to think like a warfighter. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if that makes sense. And that's, and that's the difference I saw growing up. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, the hitting upside the head kind of stuff or the right. physical stuff like we did back. They did those yeah, in like those days. Hazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, even to, to motivate you as a crew member, like well, even when I was with the Marines as a Marine corpsman, yeah. There's nothing for a gunny to pop you upside the head, you know, to get, get <laughs> yeah, your attention. Same, you submarine know? diving officers of the watch, same thing. You got a helms and planesman sit in front of you. And like back in the day, they like if they weren't paying attention to their panel or weren't on course, they'd get smacked upside the head by the dive. So, yeah, same thing. And then, uh, you know, I understand that questions have to be answered, but sometimes you get to a point where there's too much questioning. And yeah. I mean, questioning your decision-making, questioning uh, where you're going with this. And 
you know, it gets back to need to know. Yeah. And sometimes you don't have time for those questions. Right. Depending on the situation. You can't stand there and you've got flooding or whatever's going on. you got somebody continually questioning either you know how to do it or you place a guy and have another guy step in. Right. You know, you know, and and, and that's what I learned in this is you, it, that stuff can get you killed sometimes. If you're not yeah. sure, instead of asking a bunch of questions, you say, okay, step out. We're going to put somebody else in there right now. doesn't right. mean you're messed up. It just means, you know, you got more to learn. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, like I, and in that particular situation, yeah, I think the absolute right answer is just swapping people out. But as far as the constant questioning is like the, do you think, especially in your position, cause it sounds like you did through training and just your leadership style is you built enough trust with those juniors that when you were in a casualty situation and you were demanding things of them, they were just, you, you weren't having to deal with as much of that because they trusted that, you know, CMC has got uh, like, got, he's on top of it. He's got our best interests at heart and we trust him with that. And so they're just yeah. going to listen. You know what I mean? Like you're not going to get as much of that pushback if they, they trust that you've, you've, you can answer that question later because we, we know he's pointing us in the right direction. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. We got any uh, save rounds or alibis, man? Anything else you want to talk about? No, just uh, keep our nation in prayer as we go through a difficult time in our country, um, yeah. as well as our armed forces, all services, yeah. as they also deal with not only the challenges of being defenders of our country, but also dealing with not only political, but health issues worldwide. Uh, I can't even imagine what it's like to be out there today as a leader. Um, yeah. having to lead, uh, with a silent enemy, yeah. uh, a virus as well as having to deal with the challenges of being mission ready. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I have a high respect for our military and our men and women out there. And in all the speakings that I've done, I have told these North Carolinians out here that question us or our military in any way that we're in good hands and that we can put our heads on that pillow at night and sleep comfortably knowing that we're, we're protected by our, our military. Yeah. Yeah. Hey man, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I really, really enjoyed this and I've been looking forward to it since we started talking, uh, obviously, but just, this was like, I'm, I'm going to have to decompress for an hour after yeah. recording this, <laughs> just thinking about all this stuff, because I mean, this was obvious. I mean, I joined the Navy in January, 2002. So this is before my time. I mean, I was, I was around when it happened. I was in college, but, uh, 1978 for me. And I was in the army yeah. before that <laughs> wow. in 1975. So Yikes. I go way back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, and I remember the, the first moment I felt like I was in the military instead of just doing, I like the, it was the Navy was going to be just an adventure for me. I was going to do four years and, and call it a day, but I showed up at MSA school in San Antonio, Texas, uh, and when I was checking in and I was scared and like intimidated, but I remember sitting there waiting for one of the staff members to come out and we were in our dress white sea bag in our hand and uh, he was going to check us in and get us the barracks room. And I looked over and there was pictures uh, of two sailors sitting there and it was like a memorial. And I asked him like, what is that? And uh, one of the chiefs explained to me, it was uh, MSSN Francis and MS3 Santiago and uh, explained yep. to me what happened and who they were and why those pictures were there. And it blew my mind. Cause I'm like, they were cooks. Like, how did this happen? And then I remember doing the research afterwards and that was the first time it was like, it felt real. I'm like, Oh wow. Like this yeah, F- this FSAs. 
yeah. FSAs and cooks. And actually, uh, Francis, his father is a North Carolinian, lives down the road from me in oh, Woodleaf. Wow. And her grave is at Salisbury, North Carolina. And I visited it. And here's another inside scoop on that. There's no, the, the whole uh, section she's in is full except for one grave next to her. Wow. And that's for her father, who is a retired that's... chief petty officer oh, he, and, wow. and a retired state patrolman. But he asked, Clinton asked him if he could do anything. And Ron Francis, his name, the Gold Star father, yeah. uh, said, I would like to be buried next to my daughter when that time comes. And so they yeah. left that grave open. That's amazing. That's so cool. Yeah, man. Ah, oh, God. This and is, then, yeah. And Santiago um, actually has the galley area of the USS Constitution named after him. Oh, wow. And yeah, the reason my buddy, why. My best friend in this world is the is the chief on Constitution right now. So Yeah, ask him about it. And I the will. reason why they did that was because he actually served before Cole on the Constitution. And okay. one night I saw him using a, um, uh, what the heck is it called? You shoot the stars. I'm blanking right now. You shoot the sextant. Star. Oh, I gotcha. Okay. <laughs> I got you now, bro. Yeah, yeah, you're I'm Anyway, <laughs> but he's, here I, I see a cook up there using a sextant, man. I'm going, what the heck? I don't even know how to use one of those. Yeah. So I went up to Santiago and said, where'd you learn this? He says, on the Constitution. I served there before here. Oh, uh, I wow. said, no kidding. Yeah. So, yeah. Nuts. So that's why they named the galley uh, section after him. That's outstanding. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I'll definitely talk to my buddy about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Same here. It's an honor. And uh, like I said, just email me uh, your info so I can send you that coin. Absolutely. I will. Thanks so much. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, it, one of my one of my favorites. That was really cool. Uh, I really enjoy having conversations like that. And it's something that, like I mentioned in the interview, that I want to spend more time doing uh, when I get back around to being able to and when you know like the covid restrictions and stuff eventually relax where i can actually access these people um but just getting that type of living history and and the lessons that can be pulled from uh the the people that were around back then the the sailors and marines and airmen and soldiers that were doing uh all of the incredible things that we read about and learn about on our way up i i really really enjoy getting to hear those stories directly and it's you know there's only so long that you get to do that because of the the generational and time difference right so um had a lot of fun i really really appreciated uh him doing that and taking the time uh and i hope you guys got a lot out of it as well um with that if you need anything from us like always hit us up don't give up the ship podcast at gmail.com you can facebook message us don't give up the ship podcast or you can dm us on instagram or reddit at DGUTS Podcast or our DGUTS Podcast and you DGUTS Podcast because we have a sub and then that's my uh, like handle or whatever. You can get a hold of us on all of those things and then engage in discussions and stuff on on those platforms as well, especially Reddit. Uh, so come check us out there. Uh, like, share, subscribe, review all the things. And then if you guys want to support us at all, uh, it helps us pay the bills. So you can go to dguspodcast.com slash shop, pick up some... Uh, like a shirt or stickers or whatever. Uh, it's, you know, it's not for profit. It just helps us pay the bills. So if you want to do that, check that out. Uh, and that's it. That's what I got for you today. Thank you so much for listening and don't give up the ship. <laughs> <laughs>